Welcome to GI Insights on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Buck, and joining me today to discuss what we need to know about the microbiome and probiotic use is returning guest, Dr. Eamon Quigley. Dr. Quigley is the David M. Underwood Chair of Medicine in Digestive Disorders, Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and Professor of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College at Houston Methodist Hospital. Glad to have you back on the program, Dr. Quigley. Great to be with you. Thank you. So, Dr. Quigley, let's begin with some definitions. What's the difference between microbiota and microbiome? In the strictest terms, microbiota refers to the bacteria themselves. Well, not just bacteria, but fungi, viruses, any other microbes that exist in a given environment. Microbiome refers to their genetic material. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, these terms are often used interchangeably, and you'll even find experts referring to these terms interchangeably. So don't feel bad if you make this mistake. It's a common one, but strictly speaking, microbiota refers to organisms or microorganisms. Microbiome refers to genetic material. And let's just throw in another definition while we're in definitions. Dysbiosis. Dysbiosis is a term I don't like a lot because dysbiosis means, strictly speaking, that you've got a microbial population which in some way or other is abnormal. That, of course, assumes that you know what's normal. And that's a problem in many instances, including in the human gut or other human organs. Um, So I tend to be a bit more vague deliberately and say that, you know, it's a disturbed microbiota or a microbiota, which is different from norm, from controlled subjects. Uh, where I think dysbiosis has been overused and has been used in situations where it's probably not applicable. But, but to get back to your question, dysbiosis refers to a microbiota, which in some way or the other is deviated from normal. And you got me thinking about a different perspective on this. I read once that the microbiome in North America is different from remote communities in upper regions of the Amazon in South America. You want to comment a little bit about differences in microbiome? Yes. The study you're referring to is a very interesting one and one that I refer to a lot when I'm giving talks. So this is a study that was done a few years ago now comparing uh, the microbiome of individuals living in urban regions in the U.S., basically in major cities, uh, to individuals who were living in two communities in the Amazon basin, actually in Venezuela, or to to rural Africans in Malawi. And what they found was that the diversity, and by diversity I mean the number of different species, in the gut microbiome in individuals from either Africa or Venezuela was much higher than that of individuals in the U.S. Now, the reason that's important is that as a general statement, diversity is a good thing. And in general, in disease states, diversity tends to be reduced. And in health and in patients on healthy diets, diversity tends to be increased. So that was a very interesting finding. Now, the question is, what accounts for those differences? And I think the the general feeling is that the major factor there is diet and that the uh, rural dwellers in, in Africa or the, the those living in the Amazon basin in Venezuela were eating very much a plant-based diet, whereas the individuals living in cities in the U.S. were eating a, eating a high, highly processed diet. And of course, a plant-based diet is very positive for your microbiome, whereas a highly processed diet is not. 
Yeah, the other thing that comes to mind with regard to that discussion is antibiotic exposure in these remote locations as opposed to the rest of the world. Absolutely. So that, that's also emerged as a very important theme. Uh, we've known for a number of years that antibiotic exposure, and particularly frequent antibiotic exposure in childhood, and particularly in early childhood, it seems to be a risk factor for the development of a number of conditions from obesity to inflammatory bowel disease to irritable bowel syndrome later in life. Now, of course, we believe that that is because of a disruption of the microbiome early in life. And now why that's important has become clear in that for the first two to three years of your life, that's when your microbiome is developing. And after about three years, it reaches a plateau uh, and you really have your adult microbiome formed and that remains fairly stable until later in life. So interventions or things that happen in those first few years in life can have a critical impact on the microbiome, but that impact may not be felt until later in life. Thank you very much. So if we zero in on the microbiome for just a few minutes, we talked about some of the factors that can affect it. We talked about antibiotics and food. Other factors that can affect the microbiome? So you know, if you take any, any group of individuals in adult life, the big factors that affect the microbiome are age, diet, and, and antibiotics. Now, the other big factor, which I mentioned, stressed this earlier when I spoke about the, that critical early period of life, there are a number of factors there which are influential. First of all, the way in which you're born. Are you born by vaginal delivery or are you born by cesarean section? That makes a difference. Eventually you catch up, but in those initial few months of years of, or maybe a couple of years of life, it does make a difference. The second thing then is how you're fed. Were you breastfed or were you formula fed? That also makes a difference. And then what were you exposed to in your early period of life? Were you exposed to a lot of infections or did you live in a very sterile environment? And the other thing which I think you mustn't forget, and this becomes very important when we try to incriminate changes in the microbiome and disease states, is that diseases themselves can change the microbiome. So you may study the microbiome in a given disease and say, oh, it's all different. And, but in fact, that difference may be a consequence of the disease rather than the cause of the disease. So, there, But I think just to, to summarize, I think the main factors that influence the bi microbiome are birth mode, infant feeding, diet throughout life, antibiotic exposure, and then probably some other environmental factors that we're only beginning to understand. Thank you. Now, Dr. Quigley, what's the difference among probiotics, prebiotics, and symbiotics? So a probiotic, uh, by definition, means a live microorganism, which when ingested in adequate amounts, confers a health benefit to the host. A prebiotic is not an organism. It's a substrate, typically a carbohydrate, which promotes a healthy microbiome. If you combine a prebiotic and a probiotic, you've got a symbiotic. And there's a further term which has recently been introduced, which is called a postbiotic. A postbiotic is in a microorganism that has been attenuated, but still retains some biological properties. It could also refer to components of a bacteria, like its, its cell wall or some other components, uh, which has uh, biological activities. And there's quite a lot of interest in these postbiotics now because, of course, they don't have to be live. In fact, they're killed or attenuated. Uh, so there, you know, there aren't the same implications there are for storage or for storage in, in extreme temperatures, etc. So uh, that's a term I think you're going to see more of in the years to come. Thanks for that. 
For those just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Peter Buck, and I'm speaking with Dr. Eamon Quigley about the microbiome and probiotic use in gastroenterology. So, Dr. Quigley, let's now move on to some areas of controversy. Should we be giving probiotics to patients with irritable bowel syndrome? Great question. And I will give you a somewhat complicated answer, and let me try to explain. So, just to back up a little bit, irritable bowel syndrome is very common. It's a heterogeneous disorder. People have different symptoms, different severity of symptoms, different frequency of symptoms. And undoubtedly, there's more than one cause of irritable bowel syndrome. But there are some hints out there that the microbiome may be relevant to irritable bowel syndrome. And let me just mention those. First of all, there are a group of people who never had irritable bowel syndrome before, would pick up salmonella or campylobacter, infection, food poisoning, uh, and then develop irritable bowel syndrome, so-called post-infection irritable bowel syndrome. And secondly, there have been a number of studies which have shown that if you analyze the microbiome in patients with irritable bowel syndrome, in some it is different. Those findings are not consistent, but certainly they do show that, I, that there are abnormalities. And then thirdly, there is data to suggest that certain antibiotics may actually help irritable bowel syndrome. And finally, there's also data, which I mentioned earlier, suggesting that antibiotic exposure may predispose you to irritable bowel syndrome. And that's kind of a jumble of data, but what it says to me is that messing with your microbiome may play a role in irritable bowel syndrome. Now, to counteract that, there have been a variety of studies performed with the probiotics, prebiotics, symbiotics, and with fecal microbiota transplantation in irritable bowel syndrome, which have produced variable results depending on the strain that's used, depending on the dose that's used, et cetera, et cetera. But overall, the, uh, for each of those uh, therapies that I've mentioned, therapies that can modulate the microbiome, there is positive data. The problem is trying to sort it all out. So, so I would say in general, um, and I think many guidelines would agree with me, that probiotics are probably a useful therapy in irritable bowel syndrome. But which one to choose is a more difficult task because we don't have comparative studies, which is a problem. And along those same lines, should probiotics be used to prevent C. difficile? Now, there is um, good evidence that if you are taking an antibiotic um, and if you're at risk for C. difficile, for example, if you're older, uh, that a probiotic may play a role in reducing the risk of getting C. difficile or getting antibiotic-associated diarrhea in general. Don't, don't forget that a lot of people get diarrhea with antibiotics that's not caused by C. difficile. It's just caused by the, the disturbance in the microbiome caused by the antibiotics. So yes, I think that's a, a strategy that I encourage patients to do is that if they are taking an antibiotic, and particularly if they've had C. difficile in the past, it's probably no harm to take a probiotic. And again, there is data suggesting that some probiotics in that instance may be better than others. And from your vantage point, Dr. Quigley, which probiotics are the best? Well, I won't give you a straight answer to that question because I think it, it depends on the situation, it depends on the condition, and it depends on the patient population. You know, for example, I mentioned in terms of C. difficile, there's a probiotic which actually is a yeast called Saccharomyces boulardii, uh, which has quite good evidence for prevention of C. difficile-related uh, infection or for uh, antibiotic-associated diarrhea, uh, for preventing daycare diarrhea in children, for example. There are some lactobacilli that have good evidence. 
for irritable bowel syndrome, uh, perhaps bifidobacteria may have the better evidence. So it depends on the situation. It's like anything else. Like you wouldn't recommend one, one medication for everything. And before we conclude, are there any other thoughts you'd like to share with our audience today? Yes, I think the the, the microbiome area is amazing, and it's been one of the, the revolutions in medical science in, in, over the course of my career. <clears throat> and there's tremendous basic science. I think what's been more difficult to interpret and more difficult to do are studies in humans, because there's such variation in the microbiome that you need very large studies. And I think there's been a bit of a rush to incriminate the microbiome as the cause of everything. And I think we need to be a little bit more cautious in interpreting these, these studies. And as I mentioned earlier, in separating um, cause from consequence. Uh, and similarly, uh, with probiotics, because they're not regulated the same way as drugs, many of the studies were small, maybe not optimally designed. And I think we need better studies in that area also. This was a great discussion on the microbiome and probiotics. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Eamon Quigley, for this timely information. Dr. Quigley, it was a pleasure having you on the program. Delighted to be with you. For ReachMD, I'm Dr. Peter Buck. To access this and other episodes in this series, visit ReachMD.com slash where it can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening and see you next time.